I am happy to be Ashley's understudy. I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> hey guys, how are you doing today? Throwing me off a little bit right now. I don't I don't agree with snow being out here like it is in uh, October, but besides that, I'm doing okay. I feel like the weather was so much better when we moved to Minnesota this time last year. It was. I remember it being so surprisingly warm. Yeah, it's kind of a disaster this year. Hopefully, it'll maybe it'll all go away. <laughs> Thanks for having us on. Yeah, sure thing. So tell us how everything's been going. The players are on the move. What's 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 new with you guys? Um, uh, nothing really new on like our ends. It's kind of been our off season. So besides the whole period of time where uh, we were going and signing the team. Uh, it's just been like relaxation since I'm playing a variety of other games that, you know, we don't really get time to play in the off season for me, at least. Um, so I've just been hanging out, uh, trying out some other games. I really haven't had the time to play and, uh, you know, just been waiting for Cold War to come out. What are you playing, yeah. Brian? Um, recently Valorant, I've been playing a lot of, uh, I've always played like a lot of, uh, Hearthstone as well. It's just something I, I play a bit in my free time. And then, uh, been diving into some single player games with uh, Ghost of Tsushima and um, Crash Bandicoot 4. Are you immortal yet, Bri, or what? I have been immortal, but um, yeah, I'm trying to hit the highest rank in the game before Cold War comes out. Absolute nerd. No, <laughs> um, so I haven't uh, had the opportunity to dive into too many new games in the offseason. I've been somewhat busy but i know our guys are really excited they're moving to dallas i think they're they're moving in anywhere between the first of next month and the eighth are like the ranges uh the four of them gave us so they'll be ready they'll be they're online their internet will be set up and they're going to be ready to go once the game drops to practice and stream i think they have some really cool streaming ideas in mind so be on the lookout for some from for some awesome rocker content i can't speak today sorry about that <laughs> Yeah, super stoked. So, um, nice, nice. Well, and Jake's Jake's been helping us out on some uh, some top secret projects. To talk about on the screen. <laughs> so, uh, we're keep we're keeping him busy even outside of Call of Duty. I appreciate it. I don't know what I would do if I didn't have work to do. So, guys, um, give us give us your thoughts. Yeah. Yep. Um, my audio is a little choppy here, so hopefully a little bit better for uh, for the stream. But um, guys, give us your thoughts after a couple of beta weekends here. What's uh, how are you feeling about the new game? How players? Uh, for me, historically, I've never dove into betas too much. I'll, I'll play them for a few hours on the first day, and then at that point, it gets pretty stale to me because you're kind of just playing the same three maps on rotation uh, with the same game mode or two. And for me, I like playing. Uh, multiplayer games in competitive setting i feel like you don't really get too much of that in a beta so i never really judge them or, or dive too much into them i kind of wait for the full release of the game uh because there's always a lot changing uh here and there but i think the the core game that they have is good for me it's just always been about maps when it comes to competitive games so hopefully there's a, a bit of a better map selection come full release yeah i agree with brian i think the core of the game is great the fundamentals look awesome they feel great uh the game feels super smooth which i really appreciate uh I guess similar to Brian, I'm not a big beta guy one. Cause I'm just super competitive. And like Brian said, you don't really get that competitive nature there, but secondly, it really doesn't correlate to what the game's going to be like once it drops. 
like for example we saw so many differences between the alpha and the beta and the difference between the beta and the real release will be exponentially larger in terms of the way the game plays so i'd almost rather wait for the real thing what what kind of differences are you talking about like is it i mean will they change the maps will the weapons fire differently like what what like, changes yeah, everything's up for grabs. Yeah, the yeah. weapon changes are something that's always frequent. Uh, you'll see guns be a lot more dominant in betas than they are in the actual release. And then same thing, the actual game comes out and then there's one gun that's really overpowered for the first month. And then they'll have like their first uh, rotation of weapon balances. And then uh, once that happens, things become a little bit more uh, stagnant for the most part. Okay. Yeah, I noticed the weapons are really different just from um, from Modern Warfare to, to Cold War. Like, that, you'll have a weapon that looks almost the same, has almost the same name, and it will just feel completely different. Yeah, that's, that's just something that happens from COD to COD. Um, it deals with, like, the engine that the game's running on, uh, the development process, you know, the the core of the game. There's, there's so many things that factor in there. You can look at the MP5 from like six different Call of Duties and it doesn't feel the same and or even close yeah. to the same, like any two. Yeah, in any single one. I also think it's like creative freedom from the dev standpoint. So these devs are rotating year in and year out. And one of them probably thinks an MP5 should really feel like this. And another one has a team of <laughs> consultants telling them the MP5 should really feel like that. Um, so I think it's just dev to dev and preference, all preference. Got it. So don't don't violate any NDAs or confidentiality here. But you know how how are you giving feedback, if at all, to you know to Treyarch to Activision? Right? Is it just pros and coaches are tweeting things out, or or do you are you actually you know are you actually going through a process where you're providing um, some tangible feedback? Because it seems like from everything that you know that the community sees and hears that they're that Treyarch's pretty receptive to getting this right. Um, yeah, I believe most of it's just been based off what pros are tweeting on Twitter. I think I think Activate or Treyarch is really um, they they pay attention to what people are saying on Twitter, especially the pros. I know that they follow like quite a few pros and scenes, so I think they they take a lot of things uh, based on what pros say on Twitter and just over uh, the stats they get from the beta. They'll look into the stats with like the weapon statistics, what's being used the most, what's getting the most kills, what are players getting the highest KDs with. And, and they kind of tweak things through that. Uh, I think for the beta, there wasn't really a direct feedback loop, but uh, then again, there, there could have been with players like reaching out to the CDL and the CDL reaching out to uh, Treyarch. I think what's unique about Treyarch is the fact that they do not need a direct feedback loop with pro players to make changes that are best for competitive. As Brian said, it seems like they're pretty cognizant of uh, pros' opinions on the game, and not only are they cognizant of those opinions, but they're adamant about making changes that, um, I don't want to say appease, but that reflect those recommended by the pro players. So it seems like Treyarch really takes any public criticism of their game at the pro level pretty seriously, which is really good to see because you it almost avoids that formal feedback loop, and it's really them taking in all of the information and kind of coming up with a conclusion on their own on the back end. Yeah, come come full release, though, I think there will definitely be a um, direct feedback loop when it comes to creating the game settings, uh, the map pool, the weapon balances, and, and stuff like that. I don't, I don't think something like that's really too necessary uh, during the beta stages. I agree. Have you guys played Armada yet? I assume you've played all of them. 
uh the map like the boat one yeah 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 i play i played all the maps i'm not a big fan of the like 20 v 20 style map <laughs> all those ones just really get on my nerve anytime i play them because people can be wherever and i just have no idea where they're at because i can't i just can't see them they're laying in a bush they're hiding in the snow they're swimming they're, they're underwater swimming what are you supposed to do <laughs> is that your go-to map annie no do you like I... vote armada no, I'll like I'll go in the rotation, so I'll just get whatever comes up, and um, Armada comes up, and I'm just like, well, <laughs> that's a back out map for me. That's a never queue map for me. Yeah. <laughs> it's too hard for me. I'm not good. It's at an that. instant back out for me. So yeah, I didn't play much of the the twenty v twenty. I mostly stuck to the um, to the core modes, but. What, uh, so give us your thoughts on, you know, I know everyone says Moscow is the best map of the group for competitive. What's, what is that? Is that how you guys are feeling too? What's your take? I, I think, I think it's the only one in the group, <laughs> quite, quite <laughs> I, frankly. Yeah. I mean, we don't even know if Moscow will be competitive, but if you, if there was a gun to our heads and we had to pick one map, it would be that. Like, not saying it'll be the best competitive map ever. I think we need to see 4v4 play out and, um see these competitive game types being played by uh top level competition before we start hand selecting maps to be in rotations but if we had to pick one it would be that why is that like what's important about a competitive map um, um Bri, you got it yeah. i'll jump in <laughs> yeah i, I know I, you're I, itching for it yeah there, there's a lot that goes into it and, and i've had these discussions uh you know with certain people as well but um the flow of the map, the spawns on the map, there can't be, you know, too many angles or hiding places. The maps need to be uh, pretty standard where you, you can kind of gauge where people are going to be. If there's too many hiding spots on a map, uh, it creates some inconsistencies. So I, I think you want a general balance of the map with it being, you know, three lanes in a sense. Uh, if you have anything more like that, like four to six, people can kind of be anywhere, go anywhere, and it's too hard to predict, especially in a 4v4 uh, setting. I, I think if you look at maps from other games and Call of Duty and, and see the ones that are historically really popular, um, I think you'll see like a similar trend with the map design. And, and those maps that are really popular, they're not only popular in a competitive standpoint, but also a public standpoint as well. A good map's just going to flow well from casual to competitive. Right. Symmetry seems to be pretty big. Varying levels of verticality while uh, maintaining a three-lane structure seem to be pretty big just because it implements like obvious and organic power positions for players like, or positions that are just way more advantageous to be in than others. Um, and that sort of adds a strategic aspect in both casual and competitive. And then I think, uh, Brian, just um, a you're cutting out a little bit right now, unless that's just me. I see his mat. Yeah, I don't, I don't hear him talking anymore. I think he's asking you about spawns, if I'm uh, translating a little bit here. Yeah, it's yeah. It just showed his mouth moving and then nothing, nothing coming out. Maybe our producer muted him. Such a mean troll. <laughs> back? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think you're right, back. Right, right, as, right as that was happening, um, I saw out of the corner of my eye, 
um, something from like a tweet from Ashley popped up on my screen. So she might be trolling us in social media as we have, uh, okay. as we fumble our way through without her, but <laughs> in my back or no? piece of paper on my wall that said, be cool, honey, bunny, like, right. <laughs> I should have done that. Sweet. Cool. All right. Uh, let me, I, I want to ask you guys about control as a game mode. So we honestly don't know if that's going to be the third game mode, like heavily rumored out there. But, you know, for the sake of discussion, um, you know, let's say that it is right. You know, so, you know, we're all familiar with control, but the vast majority of Call of Duty that I've watched was last year, right? When obviously it wasn't one of the three. So would love to nerd out with you guys for a minute on that as a game mode. Um, and what you guys, what just, what's the strategy there? How do you, how do you and the players look at it? Like what, just talk control for a couple minutes. Um, I'm trying to think of like the best way to describe the game mode. I, I feel like it's, like a SND TDM hard point hybrid ish thing in a right. I don't know. I really don't know the best way to describe it, but we only got it one year in uh Black Ops 4. That was the only year it was ever a game mode. That's when Treyarch kind of came up with it and put it in a game for the first time. And they're doing the same thing again this year. So you only see it playing once in a 5v5 setting. And there was a lot of times on a lot of maps where uh, one site was really, really, really easy for the offensive team to get. So a lot of teams on defense would kind of just give up one site, and then it was just a back-and-forth battle for uh, one site for the majority of the round. I, I feel like something that that strategy will fade out a little bit less going into 4v4 in, in a game that's um, arguably a little bit slower, uh, per se. So I'm, I'm really interested to see how the game, plays out, the game mode plays out 4v4, but... With control, I think a lot of it comes down to the maps and uh, where the points are on the maps and how the maps are designed. And just to give, I guess, additional context for... Uh, sorry, Brett, I saw your mouth moving, but your audio wasn't coming through. Um, just some background information. Control, like Brian said, it's really a mixture between a lot of game types. But, I mean, there's, there's really two sites. There's an attacking and defending team. The caveat is that... Um, there's a set number of lives. So say each team has 25 lives, you could really win the game, say you're on offense, in one of two ways. You either capture both zones or you fully wipe the other team out to the point where they have no no more lives. If you're on the defending team, you basically you can win by making sure that um, the game, the time limit draws where you still have a point, the other team hasn't blown both of them up, or you eliminate the other team um, to the point where they have no lives remaining and they're completely wiped. So just, I guess, high level information, that's how the, the game type plays out for those of you who didn't watch or play Black Ops 4. So when, when I was playing it in the beta, what I found myself curious about, like from a, when you're in a pro match from a strategy standpoint, are you, are the four player, are you guys picking a side and you rush mm -hmm. that one side and then, you know, you just like, that's how it rolls or how does it how does it work yeah in um in black ops 4 there was a lot it was usually you know 
the offense team would send all all people on their team to one site, or you would kind of have four go one way and then one go like another way and kind of just like cause a distraction. I think later in the year, teams started uh, throwing like a lot of fakes where they'd have two people start going toward one point, make some noise while the other three people kind of sneakily went toward the other site and tried to drew some rotators. So I think we'll see a bit more of that uh, this year as well. It's it's definitely going to be a weird dynamic uh, controlled for you for though. I feel like there's going to be a lot more map spreads and, you know, teams aren't going to have to, you know, fully stack one site. Hmm. How do you think this um, new format will play out with our new players? Uh, great, hopefully. <laughs> Positive. <laughs> cool. When the, ga- when the game drops and... and- you have access to more maps and you're getting into it for the first time with the players. What are, as coaches, what are you guys looking at right on day one? What are the players thinking about on day one? Or is it just get in there and start playing and, you know, you figure it out as you go? Uh, Yeah, pretty much figure it out as you go. Uh, For like the first week, week and a half, even two weeks, uh, I think players are mostly just going to be playing public matches and S&D tournaments at that point uh, until we kind of have a a map pool to test for, you know, respawn game modes. Uh, That's usually the go-to for a lot of pro players. They'll play some things that aren't too competitive while, you know, try and iron out like what's overpowered, what's not, what should be allowed in the competitive settings. But we won't really get into scrims or anything you know, super serious until two two weeks into the game or so. I, I think it's when we'll probably start screwing. Yeah, I think the first thing you really think about when you're spawning in as like a coach or a competitive player is every time you're on a new map, it's like, okay, can this map be played competitively? Like that's sort of the first question you ask is like you spawn in, you press start, you look at the big mini map. Does it have three lanes? Does it look like it, does it look like it could be a competitive map? Does it look symmetrical? Mm-hmm. And then you're at that point, you're kind of playing. You're looking for like in-game mechanics and figuring out if there are ways you can make your guy run quicker. Maybe sliding off ledges slows you down. Maybe sliding off ledges speed you up. So I think the first hour or two are really familiarizing yourself with maps and mechanics. And then after that, you're kind of testing guns and just, just like Brian said, trying to figure out what's going to work. Nice. So we've got a couple minutes left with the coaches. We'll, we'll take some questions from the chat. Um, if anybody who's watching wants to drop some in there. And you got anything while we get, we'll give the chat a second to catch up? Absolutely. So I want to know, Based on the maps that you've seen so far, do you think our players will have any specific advantages? And could you talk about what some of those are? Um, I, I really don't think so. It's, it's, it's like so hard to answer because I really don't mm-hmm. think any of the maps that we've seen so far will be play a competitive setting. And mm-hmm. if they do, then I'm, I'm quite nervous <laughs> for the state of the game. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's really hard to say. Uh, we we haven't even seen the full build of the game yet. What guns are going to be the best? And uh, a lot a lot develops in the first few weeks of the game. So it's way too yeah, so. I think so much is going to change. And I guess the best reference or best example I could give is like the Black Ops Three beta. Everyone was using this gun called the Razorback. It was a submachine gun, and it literally did everything. It shot straight no matter how far. It killed from, like, 100 yards away in four bullets. The gun made no sense. And everyone thought that the game would be, like, a four Razorback game. And the game came out, and it was a Treyarch-developed game, and the Razorback was so bad because, like, 90% of the players in the beta were using the Razorback. 
Um, so I guess to answer your question, there's really no way to tell. Like, I highly doubt that we're going to see a game that's that similar, um, at least from a gunplay and, like, uh, gun statistics perspective. Yeah, the, gu- the gunplay and the general mechanics of the game are always going to change a lot within the first two months. I mean, you can even look at AW, which was a four-battle, a four four-AR meta for the first event and a half of the game. And then until they finally buffed up the SMGs and it kind of made it like a 2-2 split after that, or even like a 3-1 split on some maps. So does that, is that generally like just about two months that lasts? Do they stop balancing everything at some point or do you guys just have to keep balancing? It's, it's more micro balances okay. after kind of the first wave. After the game's out for like a month, they'll have like a lot of data to pull from. And that's usually when they'll have like a big overhaul. And then after that, uh, the adjustments tend to be more minor. Yeah, it depends if the developer is interested in updating the game or not. Also, from also, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> I mean, you'll you'll see you'll see years where a random gun gets over buffed in the middle of the game, and then they'll have to revert it real quick. I think in a, I think it was Ghosts where the Bison randomly became, ins- oh my god, insane for like a, a tier band. <laughs> you saw that with the the Vesper in Black Ops Three too. Well, that was that wasn't that good at the beginning of the game? Is that how it was? No, it like it got randomly buffed like a month or two in, or like maybe two, three months in. And everyone was just running four of them. Yeah, I hated that gun. I play a lot of Destiny too, and I always feel like that weapon system is really volatile. Like it's going in and out all the time, and you're just like you go into the game after a couple weeks break and you're like, I have no idea which of my weapons is going to work anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in a game like that too, it's like based off like your level and like how high ranked you are and like your what the, all the weapons have like various stats uh, because there's like so many different hybrids of each one. I feel like COD's a bit more standard with that. Yeah, it's yeah. a bit more standardized. I wish I got into Destiny. I've never played. The raids always look fun to me, but uh, I couldn't grind the game to get to that point. I swear I don't work for them, but the new game drops November 10th, so it's a good time. There's a free-to-play version right now. <laughs> I don't know why I'm ever um, I always see <laughs> We can all play it for three days until... It's uh, <laughs> funny. All right, so it looks like we got a couple questions from the chat. Um, Sam Jamma, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. Um, but what's one? What's a what's a change that you guys consistently tend to see in the in the early periods of a of a game that um, that either you're looking for or can help advance the competitive scene that typically, you know, that that's typically top of mind in the first few weeks. Um, it's usually what there's always one gun, generally speaking, that just completely overpowers everything else in the game. I think. I think the last like three years, you can kind of look back to it. Um, what was their ARs? All right, like, yeah, la- last year, They're the ARs, yeah, too. yeah it's, it's usually ARs. Last year, the M4 was just insane for the first month. Every team was just running f- uh, five M4s. The year prior, the Maddox, everyone was just running five Maddoxes uh, early on in the game. The year prior, teams were running four bars in the beginning of the game. So uh, year after year, there's always one gun that just completely trumps the others early on. So balancing that is always priority number one. And then after that, uh, you definitely want to look more toward balances uh, regarding spawns on certain maps, if there's certain spawn points that are a bit too far out, a bit, you know, wish-wash. 
uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the movement of the game, movement mechanics uh, is a big one that people have been talking about this year with the slide being too overpowered uh, early on in the beta and they, and they made some tweaks and adjustments to that. So that's really good to see. But yeah, those are like the core, the core three, weapon balancing, movement balancing, and then spawn balancing. Yeah, and I think like right when the game comes out, it's really easy within the first two weeks to know right away like if a movement needs to be adjusted or a weapon needs to be balanced. I think it oftentimes is going to take a month, month and a half, two months to figure out if spawns really need to change because in order to first, in order to identify that a spawn system needs to be changed, you need to understand the spawn system and they're different in every Call of Duty and they're all different like math equations on the back end that we as players and coaches have to figure out. And that takes a little longer than just spawning into a public match and being like, okay, this gun is exponentially better than every other one. I'm just only using this. Yeah, and one thing that really hasn't been done much in COD, uh, but has been in other games that I would like to see more is micro adjustments to maps that could make them better. You know, like adding like a truck here or like a box here, cutting off a small little lane over there. Uh, small adjustments like that are something I'd definitely like to see implemented a bit more in COD because some maps that don't play well uh, potentially could, you know, if you add like a doorway or a hallway in certain little sections of the map. Interesting. Right. All right. Well, I think we're going to uh, get ready to uh, to bring on Aaron Ashley Simon in a minute here. Uh, Jake, Brian, anything else uh, do you guys want to share with the listeners or the fans about uh, how the team's getting ready for the season? Again, uh, I mean, there's nothing too crazy that they're doing. They're, they're just moving at this point. Just, uh, you know, getting into the best environment possible to uh, perform in an online setting. And yeah, that, that's really all there is to it. Everyone's just kind of making sure they're uh, taking their time off and um, just making sure they're in the best state mentally going into the season. Sounds good. Well, thanks guys for uh, for joining us. I'm sure we'll have you on again before the season starts. Thank right, you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we are back and we are joined by Aaron Ashley Simon, who we are very excited to have with us today. Um, and Aaron, you do so many things and so many cool things that I don't even know exactly how to how to like intro you and tee you up, right? And um, you know, the funny thing is, and I'll just tell this quick story, then and then you can introduce yourself. Like we were we wanted to catch up and just you know hear about some of the things you're working on and say wait well why instead of having that as just a normal conversation let's have that on the podcast and so everybody can hear all the all the cool stuff that you're up to so yeah um you know let's maybe just give us your you know your let's hear the Aaron Ashley Simon origin story for any of our listeners that aren't that maybe aren't <laughs> familiar with you Oh man. Okay. Well, whew, let's summarize this. Uh, so hi, I'm Aaron Ashley Simon. I'm a multimedia host, producer, and a consultant within esports, gaming, and just culture. Culture is just a little more all-encompassing because I used to work in the music industry and all this stuff. And so, uh, yeah, I've been doing media work for 10 years, which is crazy to even say considering I'm only 28 years old, but I've been working in the media world for 10 years worked in traditional sports, worked in music media, and now I'm over in the world of esports and now a little even more gaming-based centric content and not just esports. So 
Uh, it's been really, really interesting. And I mean, along the lines, I've, I've obviously come to meet so many different people, including you guys. Uh, and I, one of the things that I've been really focusing on a lot more now is just the overall conversation of diversity, inclusion, and finding ways to create additional opportunities for aspiring pro players or professionals or people who want to work in the esports scene, creating more opportunities and support so that we can get more diverse and different perspectives into the scene because it's only going to make the industry grow better. Yeah, 100% agree, and and we're excited to to talk about some of that as we as we go through the show today. You said you've been you've been working in the industry for for 10 years. I saw you post something recently where, you know, it was was that was that 10 years ago the the clip you had of you interviewing uh, and it was like mini it was mini Aaron. Is that was yeah. that when that? Was? <laughs> yeah, that was. Uh, wow, yeah, that was. I was 17 years old. I think I was about 17 years old, and. It's funny because I went back and I watched some of my previous videos where I was on camera because a lot of people were like, oh, you're a natural and this and that. And I'm like, no, I was actually pretty bad on camera. I can't even lie. But it was really cool to kind of look back and see where I started and just kind of like really take a step back and just appreciate the journey that I've had to where I am now. Because especially when you get to a certain point in your career, um, things get moved so fast and you don't really get the time to appreciate those moments. And it was one of those situations where I wanted to kind of look back and just be thankful and grateful for everything that I've been able to do up to this point, but then also show a lot of people that this was not like an overnight success. Like it took me 10 years of learning, failing, succeeding and growing to get to where I am right now. So yeah, uh, it's cool that you saw that clip. It, I think a lot of people were surprised because like, I definitely looked a lot nerdier, did not have this hair. I had long hair too. So it was kind of a shock to people to not see me with short hair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, you sounded pretty good though. I gotta say, you sounded uh, <laughs> sounded very professional. No, but that, uh, that's such a true message too, right? That like you have to, you know, you have to get started somewhere and you have to, you know, it fits a lot with what we're doing as an organization, right? Bill, we, you know, we've been building this thing from scratch over the past year. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think that's true of everybody, you know, everybody's career started somewhere, regardless of, you know, where you are on that journey. Um, you know, everybody had their first opportunity, their first, whether it's, you know, first opportunity to be on camera, first internship, first job, whatever the case may be. So that's, you know, that, that's such a great message. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a long journey, you know, I, I think, a lot of times too, when when some people look at those within the esports world, I think they forget that it took years and years and years for a lot of these people to get to where they are, um, and and not to say that that process won't be expedited because there's a lot more support on various different levels and from mainstream and from universities and from just bigger platforms to help people get into this space. So the process would be expedited, uh, but still, a lot of us has been have been spending like. 10 years, eight years, six years, five years, whatever amount uh, to kind of, to pretty much get to where we are. That's great. What, like, what, what was that journey like from, you know, from the things you started working on earlier in the music industry and traditional sports yeah. to yeah. getting it more into gaming and esports? So, that crossover that I had, uh, naturally over time, you know, I've become, there's, there's been a few things that I've been known for that people have told me. One, I've been the person who said the things about esports that some people can't say, but they really want to. Um, 
And I guess that's you need examples. I, I mean, just the you know, I, I've been very vocal about the accountability factor of the industry in so many different ways. And you know, even for me, that's also very and especially around this time. And it's a very tough kind of conversation to have because that's also an accountability factor placed on people that I know in the industry. Um, but you know, there are things that have to be addressed and they have to be talked about. You know, that's part of my responsibility being someone who's in media and more so focused in the news side of things. Um, and so I've been very like, uh, very New York candid when it comes to it. Sometimes, you know, I try to word things the right way, but sometimes the, you know, the New York way is just to say it how it is. And that's how I am sometimes. Um, but another way I've been integrating is just naturally, like, you know, I've been a gamer for all my life. I The first console I played on was Sega Genesis, and the first game I've ever played was Sonic. And there's always been historically such a cultural tie to gaming, you know, whether it's music licensing and tracks, you know. Even now, I can remember some of the best video games with the best soundtracks. Streets of Rage 2 is one of them. Final Fantasy. There's, a, oh, there's yeah. tons of them, right? <laughs> so there's always been kind of like that culture integration. But now we're starting to see it happen within esports whether it's you know people who are hip-hop artists athletes investing to the scene whether it is uh the integration more of like the cultural nuances of social media like what you guys are doing the podcasting world that's the new that's that's something that's building to as well and so we're seeing a lot of these intersections and just naturally over time because i'm passionate about all these things like i've really just honed in on speaking about these within the context of esports and so we're seeing a lot more of it. And, and it's interesting because although gaming has been mainstream, esports hasn't really been mainstream. And now we're seeing esports joining gaming at the folds when it comes to pop culture. Uh, so it's only going to mix and mingle a lot more now. And I honestly, I think the impact of COVID expedited mainstream's attention and appreciation towards esports a lot quicker than probably if we didn't have COVID. Um, but I'm really excited because, you know, it allows me to talk about all these passions within the context of competitive gaming. And now it's the challenge of having to explain esports to those in mainstream and also to explain, not to capitalize the S. That's like the first thing I try to explain to them. But you have to explain the rest of, the, of it to them <laughs> in order for them to buy in because more mainstream buys in, more financial support will buy in. It's just about how do we allocate this appropriately, keeping the core essence of what esports is, which is this passionate grassroots initiative and community, but taking it to a bigger level. So that, those are some of the things I've been seeing and just, you know, just my kind of transition into being more of that person who's at the intersection of culture and esports. Yeah, that's great. And that's something we talk a lot about here, finding that right balance of, you know, of expanding the audience, because ultimately that's, you know, that's what our organization wants to do long term, but but making sure that we're true to what's what's great about esports and and doing right by the core mm -hmm. audience that's already been a part of it for a long time before Minnesota Rocker or Version One were a thing. Um, so I'll, I'll pause there. I'm I'm getting Annie's audio on a little delay, so I want to make sure if she's if she's trying to jump in that I'm not just uh, just keep, just continuing to talk here. Ah, <laughs> uh, Brett, you're so kind. <laughs> <laughs> But Aaron, I wanted to ask sort of with that influx of, you know, mainstream musicians, athletes, like all this, the big designers, everybody coming into this esports scene. How do you feel like the esports fans are feeling about that? Is the is the core esports fan like, hey, stay away from my cool stuff or are they welcoming to this? I think we're seeing um, 
I think we're seeing varying thoughts, right? I think it's it's very um it's very unique and interesting because esports fans are also fans of lifestyle, right? You know, mm-hmm. you have esports individuals who are sneakerheads. You have esports and and fans who are also fans of hip hop. So the integration, I don't think, is a problem. It's just how these people go about it. Like for example, I I talked about this. Sneaker brand companies don't need to label a sneaker. This is the esports sneaker. Like it's it's <laughs> to me that's kind of whack. I think that it's it's making this weird assumption that like we we we're not sneakerheads and also esports fans and gamers. Like it just it doesn't make sense. Well, there's no but, performance angle. You don't even need to wear shoes to game. <laughs> exactly, right? The, the sneaker for a gamer is just a sneaker. The sneaker for an esports fan is just a sneaker. Yeah. I think that there are more better and concise ways that they can integrate. And so I think that the community, their fans that are embracing it, but it's just all about how they're coming in and how they're integrating themselves. It just has to make sense. It can't just be like they want to use the word as a marketing tool to sell whatever they're trying to sell. It's like, mm-hmm. how can you come in and provide value to this community, assist this community and help it grow through the lens and the context of culture and lifestyle? That's how they can do it. Because I mean, we've seen people who are quote unquote outsiders on in different orgs and different positions, right? And when I say outsiders, it's more so people that didn't originally work in esports, may have been fans or gamers themselves, and are now working in this space. We've seen people be, come in, you know, technically in some way, I was kind of an outsider at one point too. You know, I was, I was a gamer. I obviously I watched a bit of esports, but I myself didn't work in this space. And so like, I had to gain the trust of a lot of people considering, you know, since I do media, you know, what I say can travel. Yeah. And so it's, you know, you have to gain the, the, the trust of the community is like the most important thing. But I don't think, I don't think fans have a problem with it. It's like I said, it's just a matter of how they go about it. That makes a ton of sense. I feel like one of the first things I learned when I started working in this industry is that pretty much none of the groups actually call themselves esports. They're like, no, we're just, we're Call of Duty. Like we're not, we don't, yeah. we don't use that term. That's like a marketing schmarketing term that, that doesn't get thrown around very much. And uh, it was just interesting to see. I, I think historically, you know, when there's a great big group of, of people that the mainstream doesn't understand, we we try to group them, and it makes sense to group them necessarily. All these different esports are really, really different. The fan bases are different; they behave differently. It's um, it's been really interesting to learn about. Yeah, it's funny too because for people who are outside, the best way that I explain it is: okay, you want to understand esports, traditional sports. You have sports, which is the overarching concept, right? You have Major League Baseball, you have NBA, you have NFL. They are sports, but they have their different rules, their different structure, their different schedule, their different way of playing, and their different fan bases. Now, those fan bases can cross over here and there, right? Because if you are a fan of first-person shooters, you're going to be a fan of the likes of Siege and COD. But it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it constantly crosses over. And and, right. and that's the best way that I, tr- I can explain it to me, like the people who don't understand it. And then it's interesting for as much as they feel like they don't understand the scene, once they're in, they get it. It's just more so when they watch the competitions, it kind of like overstimulates them. And then they just are like, oh my God, I can't do this. Like I never, I honestly, I never encourage 
any newcomers, I never have them watch Overwatch. <laughs> I have them watch like <laughs> Call of Duty. No, I do. I have them watch Call of Duty because they get it. There are guns. There, it's one team. It's another team. You're trying to capture something. Or you're trying to shoot at each other. Very basic, <laughs> and they get it. But you, but you can't have them watch Overwatch where it's like, okay, this person, this, you know, you have this ability and that. And it's like then they're just like, I'm lost. Um, so it's like easing <laughs> them in, but using concepts that they can understand. Yep. Yeah, I remember I brought my parents who are in their 70s to our uh, our Call of Duty launch event last January. Mm -hmm. And um, I tried to sort of explain the game modes to them, but my dad just looked at me and he's like, they shoot the other guys, right? I'm like, yes, yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what is it, one of the things that truly, now that we're a year into this, gives me like the, the like really the faith that that this can continue mm -hmm. to grow and grow and grow is just how exciting it is. I mean, I like, I was thinking the other day that if I like, I'm as into a rocker match as I have been any sport that I've ever watched of any team that I've been a fan of or worked for or any of that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's, that's truly where, you know, and I think that's where we, we, we do see the fan base starting to grow, especially locally in Minnesota. Um, you know, with people who may not have, may not have engaged with esports previously because it was something that was hard, you know, it's, it's hard to access events when you live in Minnesota and you've got most of the events are on the coasts. Um, but having a team in their backyard gives them a reason to cheer for it. And I'm talking about people who are passionate players of Call of Duty, the game, right? Like that's an audience that we talk about a lot about, a lot about reaching. Um, but just the, like, the match, the core product is great. Like it's so exciting to watch and, and you know, it's, it's a lot, we're having a lot of fun doing it. Like that's, that's, that's a big part of it. That's good. That's good. I, you know, it's, there's not a one size fits all in esports, Um, but you know, there are concepts from different industries that I think can work um, in some shape or form in this, like you're saying city-based franchise system. You know, the regionalization aspect, especially in the U.S., is something that brands can understand from a marketing standpoint um, and even even from a cultural standpoint. Uh, but there's a lot more. You know, we have the develop. We have to further figure out talent development, especially in North America. Right. It's just all these different things. But it's been great just to see even with the Call of Duty Pro League and just other leagues and how they're adjusting to this mainstream attention right now and how to integrate more brands, uh, different structures, and, and different people all in just to grow it a lot more. Yeah, Aaron, you've been quoted as saying that esports isn't foundationally structured. I think yeah. yet is the implied. Um, what does that kind of mean to you? And, and what do you think are the next steps? I think that esports right now, although it's growing, the more so the financial sustainable model isn't quite there. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's even impacted a lot more now because of COVID-19. And so I think that, you know, it's been growing and growing and growing. Right. But there are, there are various different things that we don't have in place. Like for example, here in the, here in North America, we don't have a quite set talent development pipeline. We don't. So we have top players. But what if we're missing out on one of the greatest because of accessibility, because of the lack of talent development? You know, we see how 
like in uh, certain teams in South Korea that they've been putting more emphasis in talent development. Now, I have to say, they have better internet than we do, uh, <laughs> and it is just some other things, uh, but they like develop academies, right? Where they're taking their talent, they're developing them, they're, they're taking them young, they're structuring it, right? And I think that that's something that we can work on much better to even further improve the competitive side and create that pipeline model um, that will create more of a, a sustainable um, structure, but then also will help eventually with figuring out a more sustainable financial model. And the, the more that we have this kind of pathway to pro and different opportunities and, and more of a solid foundation of you're going to get the best of the best, uh, more money is going to be invested in it. I always tell people, people look at the NBA as like the prize. At one point, the NBA was a failing league. Like it was almost done, <laughs> but but it changed because of the narratives, the structuring, um, and it created a better model. And with that model, more money was invested into it. Right now, esports is getting money, but the return on investment is not in the positives. And there's very few organizations that have it in the positives. So we still have ways to go to build that model where that return on investment will go back. And, and then it will be more money will be feed, fed into, into the whole ecosystem. So, you know, but it's, it's going to take time. I mean, esports has been around for a while, but in the format that it is now and with the greater attention, it's still kind of young in that capacity. Um, but I believe that it's it's definitely going to get there. But like I said, it's going to take work on our entire, all of us. It's going to take work developing these academies, figuring out what does the path to pro in college, right? Do we even know if like, if kids can effectively go from college to pros because of such that young age, like kids are retired, they're retiring around like 26, like makes me feel old and I'm not even old. And so we just got to figure all that out. And I think that it will move more towards a sustainable model. That's great. Um, and I, yeah, I definitely agree. We, we talk a lot about figuring out what that looks like for us as an organization. How do we, how do we engage with the college esports community, especially now that we're a year into our existence, you know, it's really time for us to figure out how we do some of those things. Um, you've, you've been doing a lot of work lately um, with HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, and you've got some initiatives coming up. Um, we're, 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 we're excited to work with you on a couple of things. I don't know what we can actually talk about and what we can't talk about. So some yeah. people may have to wait a little while for some announcements. Um, but what, what can you tell us about what you're working on there? Uh, so what I can say is for those who don't know, there's a nonprofit, um, it's called Community, and they have uh, partnered with Twitch to help develop uh, a new HBCU esports league. And so, you know, some of the colleges, you know, are like Howard, Morehouse. Um, if you want to take a chance, like definitely look up historically black colleges and universities. And uh, so they're they're working on creating this, this structure for it. But the one thing is typically historically black colleges and universities do not receive the same financial support compared to other universities. Like I went to the University of Kentucky and because of athletics and, and various different reasons and donors, you know, there's a lot of money in the university. I think out of the schools in the SEC, we're one of the very few universities that we can literally run on our own without the NCAA financially. So it's it's one of those things that like I, I there's such a disparity in esports and we don't talk about it enough because 
the basic standard to get into esports, you need PC and, and good internet. There are a lot of people, especially in low-income areas and even people of color, that don't even have access to any of those. <laughs> so how can we help to create more opportunities and make it accessible to everyone? And not just people of color. Like I said, low-income areas, uh, regions that aren't, that aren't focused on for esports, right? You know, the Midwest, the South, even New York City is one that is just recently is being um, more esports organizations and focus is being placed in the inner cities. And so it's like, how can we create these opportunities bit by bit? Um, and having HBCUs, having esports league makes it even more enticing for students to one, not only get their education, but to have an opportunity to create a pipeline from these universities into the esports ecosystem. It may not even be pro player. They can work in here, you know, but it, it creates that diverse in perspective. It creates that diversity in just individuals because a lot of them are console gamers, but it's like, how can we get those people who are predominantly console gamers who only get on PC later in their life? How can we start that earlier for them? So one of those is starting with the historically black college universities. And so with this, uh, we're actually doing a streaming series. We are pairing up with a major record label and We'll be using these streams to raise money to help with getting appropriate equipment um, and helping to provide resources to the university so they can have their players compete at the highest level and view it in a reputable way. Uh, the same way that we're seeing this transition in terms of uh, pr like uh, top basketball players are now viewing at HBCUs, top football players looking at HBCUs now, the same should be done for esports as well uh, from a collegiate level and even from like a, a business side as well. So uh, I wanted to start with here, but that's it's not it's not the only thing I'll be doing, but it's one of the things that I can do during this time. And I'm, I'm really happy to have your whole team a part of it as well. That's awesome. Well, we're, we're excited to have more details to share on, on how our organization is going to uh, get involved a little bit and, and hopefully support um in the in the very near future but those are very uh those are important initiatives and you know we um you know we want to find the right way for for us to support um aaron tell us a bit about um about uh ven and the show that you host on that network and just what's mm -hmm. going on there because that's a that's an awesome exciting new project that um that we've been hearing a lot about yeah of course so for the uh, Ven is a 24-7 gaming and entertainment network. And I'm one of the hosts, uh, co-hosts for a show called The Download, where we focus in on news within gaming, esports, and culture. Uh, funny enough, today is our esports day. So we will be talking about esports later on. But uh, yeah, it's really cool. We This unique thing is that we all have different perspectives um, and just passions. I mean, obviously all of us as hosts, we are gamers. We all have different interests. Some of us are more JRPGs, first person shooters, uh, MOBAs and, and others. And um, it's interesting because we can all bring our unique perspective and, and, and talk about news from the perspective of gamers, right? And, and the perspective of esports people. And so we have all this combination that I think helps to drive these important conversations. You know, like I'm, we're probably going to talk about the recent DMCA crackdowns, right? And just how that's just impacted everyone um, in so many different ways. But, you know, why is that, right? And so I'll, my co-host will have the perspective of gamers and streamers, but then I myself had the perspective of like, I worked, I've worked within the music industry and I have friends who work at the music industry label. So I can speak to that and provide that value. And I, I just, I love the fact that we're able to 
one pretty kind of like we're in a way it's like we're kind of making history in a sense with the Venn network because we're we're at least becoming a staple within the content and media coverage of esports and gaming the same way that I felt like even though you know it wasn't as big but when I was over at Cheddar Esports I didn't realize how many people Cheddar Esports resonated like the content we put out, how it resonated with the community and how many people, honestly, I didn't even know how many people really knew until like it ended. And then all these people were hitting me up. I'm like, oh my God, I loved it. I was like, whoa, I did not know you watched it. So it feels <laughs> like the same thing's happening with then, but it's adding more of that culture component that I didn't have at Cheddar. Um, but that I'm really happy to dive in more with my colleagues and, and just the overall team. And I think we can make something truly special. That's awesome. So Erin, what are you, what do you think is going on? We talked a little bit about diversity and inclusion, and I just want to know, what's your take on women in gaming these days? So women in gaming, um, I mean, we're here. Uh, I don't, we're we here, <laughs> we're here to stay too. Yeah, I never, I mean, honestly, I think it's interesting because it, there's such there is a problem there is a problem in esports but i don't think people uh and, and maybe not everyone right you know there are some people that do understand but i think that there are some people that don't understand some of the obstacles that women have to face and it's and and i know a lot of times people say well when it comes to esports and gaming they have the same equipment and it is more equal than traditional sports that's not the point <laughs> i think they don't realize <laughs> The, the 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 stress of not only having to compete but like having people you know uh attack you because you're a woman calling you inappropriate names that you're seeing constantly um you know discrediting your ability because you're a woman and if you are a woman of color there's a there's an extra layer to it right and these are things that impact people right and these are some things that men don't have to go through to become pro players yes there is a level of stress and there are moments where you know people will say not so nice things but you know it's never it's never their their performance is never like discredited because of their appearance their their performance is never discredited because they're a man right and and so there is that disparity in it and i'm actually i like the fact that we're creating um, areas that women can feel more comfortable and feel more empowered to be in the scene. And it's not separating the men from the women, right? That's not what it is. I always tell people the same way that in traditional sports, the same way that we see in esports, you create different competitive scenes that will ultimately help bring us top players and better player. And there's so there's obstacles for why we are not getting certain top players, right? Mm -hmm. And so if, if anything, having these opportunities, these comfortable entryways for women, and then even for youth, right? Co college scene is a comfortable entryway for some people mm -hmm. because it is, you know, if they get a scholarship or, you know, at least they have that comfortable foundation of, okay, even if I don't go pro, I still have my education. So we have to view it as just creating more avenues and spaces for us to really find some of the best of the best. And some people can just, take the traditional route some people gotta take a different route right we see this in traditional sports i don't understand why people have a problem with us having the same thing in esports you know it's 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 not to separate it's creating the best possible way to find the best players and so i think that we'll start to see 
as we're creating more of these comfortable areas and spaces, I think we're going to start to see um, more women, you know, wanting to compete on the top pro levels. We'll start and, and mixing it with the men. We will have some women teams, you know, and, and that's completely fine. If anything, I think it's just going to make the scene more diverse. And with more diversity, like I said, it creates more opportunities. And what people don't understand is more diversity, more opportunities means what more money that can be placed into the scene. So, you know, I, I'm excited for it. And and I really hope to be someone that, that helps. And even for broadcasting, like I want to see, I want to see more women that look like me. There's some amazing women in this scene. You got a Frost Curran, you got a Seltzer, and I can go on and on and on. Uh, but even we have a diversity issue in broadcasting. Like typically I'm one of the very few black and, and or latinx women on a broadcast and and even that needs to change mm -hmm. but it's like okay how can we change it how can we how can we create opportunities for people to highlight their skill sets so we can get the best of the best you know diversity does not mean we don't get best of the best diversity just means we get an array of top talent so it's not just this small portion anymore of top talent now you have more top talent that you can tap into for different leagues different scenes and everything like that I agree with you. And, you know, I think I think it does mean that eventually we get the best of the best, right? Because you have all these young people watching and, and not seeing themselves represented. And once they do, that's when it's going to be, you know, we're going to get the floodgates opened to entire pools of talent that are currently, you know, opting out too early or opting out because, you know, you turn on your mic and some 13 year old boy tells you you suck because you're a girl and, and you're just like, I can't deal with this. Um, it's, I think, you know, long term, I think the diverse talent is going to be what takes us to new levels of competition and new levels of, um, of how good you can be at this and how good the games and how good watching can be as well. It's funny, it's funny. though, I just want to quickly mention this. It's funny because we do, I mean, the diversity aspect in terms of uh, accessibility and opportunity, I mean, it has gotten better. Mm -hmm. But there are areas that we don't even really pay attention to, which I don't understand. Like the Latin, Latin America is one of the biggest markets for gaming and also even esports. Mm -hmm. And I still don't understand why we haven't fully tapped, fully highlighted that scene as much. And I get it, you know, the language barrier. I get it, but we have enough Latin people working in the industry that 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 barrier can be closed. And maybe part of that development process is the same way that we see soccer, like Barcelona, taking the likes of uh, Messi, brings them into the academy. And in that time, you can help help them learn English and help them, you know, get acclimated. That talent development process could be important, you know, because I even was looking at uh, some of the top YouTubers in gaming. They're, they're Latinx. But it's like, yet we don't really correlate that. It's like sometimes we just focus in on NA, we just focus in on uh, China, South Korea, and, and and Europe. But we have millions and millions of, and a lot of people in Latin America who are massive gamers, but we have yet to truly tap into that to the fullest potential. Why? These are a lot of questions I think we still have to figure out in, yeah. in some spaces that we need to work on. But I, but the more that we do, like you said, it's going to be diverse, more opportunities, and it's just going to make esports better. And Aaron, you brought up a really good point that that, I mean, there's a lot with this conversation that doesn't get talked enough about, right? But you brought up a point that I rarely hear made, but I very much agree with, which obviously these things are important for many, many reasons, but 
they're also good for business, right? And I've never, I just fundamentally don't understand why any business would not want to, would not want to create an envi environment of inclusivity and why you would want to exclude portions of the, of your potential audience, right? That's never, that just fundamentally has never made sense to me. Um, and so I really, I really like the way you, you made that point. Um, but you know, for us, there was, a, there was something that interestingly, you know, came our way recently where we were talking with a, with a job candidate and I'll preface what I'm about to say by saying that like what we've, the things that we have an organization have, have done to support inclusivity, like there's some things that I think are positive, but I honestly believe we've done the bare minimum as an organization, right? And we need to do more and the industry needs to do more. Um, but we were talking to a job candidate recently um, who was somebody that was sought after by multiple organizations. And this person was interested in joining our organization um, because of some of the things that we've done in this area. And that was something that I never expected, um, you know, to hear or just in that context, it wasn't something that had occurred to me. Um, and so it's something that, you know, like as an organization, you want to you want to support things, you want to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. But these are also situations where the right thing to do is also good from a business sense, and and it and it it, it boggles my mind that the industry doesn't under not just this industry but all industries um, sometimes lose sight of that. Yeah, it, it does. But you know, there are like you said, there are people that are, that are working on it, and sometimes you got to. You got to have a proof of concept to get everyone else on board, unfortunately, because some people just aren't inclined to think about these things. Um, you know, I've had conversations with other individuals and, and people at different organizations. Right. And we had a conversation about the integration of like hip hop acts and, and just uh, and people that I like to say are within black culture. Um, and even with that, you know, they're like, oh, do they play league? Do they play Dota? Do they play? you know, CSGO. And I had to remind them, I was like, <laughs> you have to remember from a cultural standpoint, they hip hop rappers typically are console gamers. They don't start playing PC until later on. And even so, most of them don't. Most of them are still console gamers. Athletes are the same way. I mean, yeah, there are some who are PC gamers, but there are some who still, they have a PC, but they continuously plug their console controllers in. Why? Because they grew up playing console because people, some of these people were poor and they can only afford consoles. So even that disconnect is still a problem, you know? And and, and it's, it's not like people are intentionally saying these things and doing these things. It's that sometimes you kind of have to remind people like, not everyone has access. Not everyone can afford a PC. Like I didn't start PC, playing on PC until only a couple of years ago. Like I was predominantly a console gamer. Um, and so it's a cultural thing. It's a socioeconomic thing. Um, and it's even a regional thing. So it's just like, even when we're having discussions, it's like we're, we're constantly having to train each other to think like, okay, we can't keep thinking this way. Like, if we want to grow this industry, we can't just be PC. Like, there has to be other opportunities. And there's other areas that we can tap into. Um, and that's also probably why we don't see the scene as diverse. Because, like I said, console gamers are typically, they're predominantly Black and Latin. And it's like, that's also probably contributing to the factor of why we're not seeing as many into the scene, in addition to all the other factors, right? But um, I think as long as we continue to have these conversations, as long as we continuously you know, hold each other accountable 
Um, I think we'll be fine. Some people will do it better and sooner than others. And there's some organizations, to be honest, and companies will probably not do it until it's cool enough to do it. Um, but at least for everyone else, we, you know, if we see this, this is a, 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 a void that needs to be filled, um, as long as we're actively working on it and progressively, you know, um, tapping into it bit by bit, I think we'll eventually get everyone else on board. It, it's just going to take time. The same way it took time for people to jump on the esports world, like the bandwagon, I guess you want to call it. But, you know, it took certain people coming in, certain people come in, and then, you know, the Nike world came in, Louis Vuitton, like, and everyone's like, oh my gosh, what is this thing called esports? Like, oh, is this new? It's like, no, it's been around for like 20 years, but we'll let you think it's new. Like, you know, it's just that kind of thing, you know, you just got to work bit by bit and get and draw more people in bit by bit. Yeah. And, you know, that, that accountability that you mentioned, that that's very real. And, and I think yeah. that's really important. And, and honestly, you know, like we're an organization that wants to, you know, we, we can sit around a podcast all day and say, we want to support this and we want to do the right thing. And like talk is cheap. Right. And like, honestly, at some point, like six months from now, a year from now, years from now, right. Yeah. Like we're going to, we're going to see you at an event, Aaron, and I want, or we're going to be on a podcast together or something. And I want you to challenge us, right? Like, I want you to say, Brett or Annie, like, what have, what have you done since I was on your podcast <laughs> on October 22nd, right? And and if, like, if the best we can do is, like, awkwardly, like, you know, say some words and try to change the subject, then shame on us, right? Yeah. Hey, as long as, as, long as you guys continue to work with me, you'll be fine. <laughs> um, I, I love it. Love it. Yeah. Well, I mean, ideas if you have them. I mean, we want to work with you on this stuff. We want to work with anyone who's willing to help us. So we are we are very actively seeking strategies and mm -hmm. ways to change this. Well, so I, in I, plan, right, Brett? <laughs> well, I love what you guys are doing. I love the fact for me, like, you know, if you don't mind me taking a second to compliment you guys, but I love the fact that you guys are willing to try things and you guys authentically use your platforms to address and speak up for what's right. You know, I saw what you guys did in terms of the recent um, police brutality protests. Um, and then even from a content standpoint, like you guys aren't afraid to do a podcast, right? You guys aren't afraid. Like I like that. Cause to me, I'm the same way where it's like, if I have, if I have an idea, especially an idea that could help people, I'm not going to sit on it. I'm not going to be like, oh, is this, is this cool or what? No, I'm going to do it, you know? And I like the mentality that you guys are, are, you know, you're figuring it out bit by bit, but it's, I rather, I rather someone try and consistently try and maybe stumble now and then than to not try and just post a, a, a just tweet out a solidarity post, but do absolutely nothing. Like that's, my viewpoint in it. and I think that in terms of the organizations that I've seen the teams that I've seen like you guys have been doing like a really really good job and I have honestly I have a lot of respect for the entire team over there thanks, thanks. so much that means a ton it, it, it was um and has been and continues to be something that we talk about a lot internally we are always very cautious of jumping into a situation in a way that might make it look like we're trying to take advantage or we're trying to get attention around something that, you know, may or may not have something to do with us. And 
it's really, it's hard and we're not always going to get it right. So just saying that you appreciate that we try is much appreciated. You know, we all lost a lot of sleep figuring out what the right thing to do was in that particular situation. And I think going forward, it's, it's going to continue to be that way. And we want to be a force for good in this community and we want to drive inclusion. We want to, you know, we, we want to do the right thing. And it's, it's just not always clear what that is. And especially when you're a small org, just establishing yourself, mm -hmm. there's this feeling of like, well, who cares what we think? But it does matter. It matters. It matters that people speak up and that they, they say what they mean and what they think about these things. Or, you know, if it goes unsaid, then people can assume that we don't care. Yeah. And I think, you know, you, it, it's, it's about, you know, it's not about like, Oh, mass impact, right? Because even if, you know, even if we're talking from a historical standpoint, people don't realize that the civil rights movement took many years, almost two decades, right? But incremental change is what can help to set kind of like the flame for big progress and change. And so that's why I always appreciate when people take those necessary steps and those small steps, even if they stumble a little bit, um, as long as we're taking those necessary steps, big change can occur from that. Um, you know, it's just people just have to one, obviously, like you said, like just figure out how to do it the right way and not being afraid to do it. But it's been interesting. You know, I think during this time when we were all quarantined and just everything was happening with the protests, I realized that it woke up a lot of people in the gaming esports world that typically wouldn't talk about those things and are now. The same way that we're now seeing a lot of streamers and people talking about the importance of voting. Mm -hmm. Didn't really see that as much before. So I think there's been a bit of a change. And even part of that incremental change where people in the industry, you know, and especially even people of color like myself really speaking up and saying, you know, enough is enough. Like we're tired, right? And for those people to see people that they know and admire and appreciate and respect breaking down and, I, and I, it's, it's hard for me to say, but like breaking down, being emotional, like telling like, I'm not okay. Realizing the magnitude of just everything that's happening. I think it opened up a lot of people's eyes and I'm actually, I'm really proud that the esports and gaming community are really kind of like really pushing and, and charging away with trying to change things, not only in the industries, but also outside of it as well. Yeah, that's, I don't know that I have anything to add to that. That was, that was so well said, Aaron. <laughs> Thank it, you. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it, at the end of the day, I mean, this is like 2020 is the, you know, I think I'm, you know, I'm maybe the oldest person like on this podcast and what that that's probably, you know, maybe even listening to it. But I mean, 2020 has been the most impactful year across the board of my lifetime um, and it's been, there's a lot of difficult situations for a lot of people. And you can only hope that, you know, through these challenges and that, that, that there's progress made um, in whatever form that takes for, you know, for on an individual level on, you know, for organizations and, and for industries. You know, and there's something that you said that I think is really important. And it's something that we think about, or I, I think a lot about, like, I don't know what to do to make major impact on these type of issues right but you know for as an organization we're looking for small ways to like what can we do that's that's meaningful and tangible and you know it doesn't have to be a you know a, a big grand gesture it can be you know like how 
how can we support the HBCU program? How mm -hmm. we, we did a partnership last month with um, the Alan Page Education Foundation here in Minnesota, which is a group that um, Alan Page, if you're not familiar with him, he was, he's a Vikings Hall of Fame player um, who's now a, um, a Supreme Court justice for the state of Minnesota. And so we partnered with his foundation and it just started with a phone call with, with them and just learning about what they were doing and they were about to have a charity gala and, and we put it on our YouTube stream and it's very small things, right? That was not a heavy lift or a difficult thing for us, but if that helped get their message out to a few more people um, that, that are fans of this team that would have not otherwise heard that important message about, about challenges and the importance of educational opportunities in diverse communities, like if, if 10 more people had access to that information that wouldn't have before and thought about things a little bit differently, maybe might vote a little bit differently because of those things. Like that's, you know, that's us having a very small impact, but that's what, like, if that's all that's important. Right. And that's yeah. what we want to try to do. Yeah. That's important. You know, if you can change one, two, three people's lives. That's all that matters. You know, cause it's a trickling effect. Once you change the minds and lives of one or two, three people, those individuals can go and change the lives of one or two, three people and it just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. You know, it, that's why, you know, I always tell people you don't have to have a hundred thousand followers on Twitter to change someone's life. You don't, you can literally have only a hundred followers and change someone's life. You know, it's just, just about what you do and how you do it. Not about how many people follow you and not, and you know, and it's not even how many people lives you change you know even if it's one that's still one more than what you could have had before which was zero and one is better than zero so you know i think that's an easy concept you don't want to have zero championships you want to have at least one championship like same thing with life <laughs> <laughs> yep we we have a saying here that we're building the fan base one fan at a time right and it's the it's the same thing right you, you know one one person at a time one message at a time right exactly <laughs> All right. Um, is there anything else we should uh, we should talk about? I mean, you're doing so much cool stuff. I'm sure there's stuff we didn't get to. But uh, before before we wrap, any you know anything you want to cover, Aaron or Annie? Anything you want to talk about? Um, I'll just say that next week we are hosting our Women of the Arena tournament. Uh, Minnesota Rocker is hosting a Women's Warzone tournament with EFuse. It's presented by Crocs. Uh, it's going to be on ESPN Esports, and it's going to be fantastic. So make sure to tune into that next week. Yeah, and uh, the only thing I have is the announcement for uh, what we talked about with the HBCU Esports League. That is dropping later today. Uh, it will be on my Twitter account, so if you want to <laughs> check it out, head over to uh, at Aaron A. Simon. Uh, and there will be more news and awesome things that are going to be dropping. I've been doing a lot within content. I've been, you know, doing podcasts and different things with all sorts of different organizations and charity initiatives and all that. So there'll be a lot more of that. Um, but I'm also going to be dropping um, more educational and informational sessions. I did one where I had a bunch of my, my friends and reputable broadcasters in the scene literally did a stream telling, you know, letting people know what they need to do what skills they need to build, what equipment they need to have to become broadcasters in the esports and gaming space. So um, I will be doing a lot more of those educational informational sessions because I've been lucky enough to be privy to a lot of information because of the companies I worked for, but a lot of people aren't. And the simplest thing as in having a, having a, a reel done appropriately can literally change someone's career. And so I will be doing a lot more of those educational informational sessions on my own too. 
That's amazing. That's, that's great. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you, Aaron. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, really appreciate uh, you coming on and, and sharing what you're up to and, and a lot of the important work you're doing. So um, everybody keep an eye out for, for that announcement that Aaron referenced coming, uh, coming later today, uh, today being Thursday, if you're listening to this uh, after the fact. Um, yeah, thanks, Aaron. Um, you know, best of luck with all the all the great work you're doing, and I'm sure we will be talking again soon. Yes, thank you guys for having me on. Thanks, Aaron. It's been a pleasure. Thanks everybody for listening. Yep, thanks everybody for listening. This has been Building Minnesota Rocker.